or as we begin this morning, I suppose. Sherilyn. Yeah. I am going to talk about that. I promise that part. That's early on, too. We won't even run out of, if we run out of time by then, I'm really long-winded today. Yes. About verse 7. Um, yes, I am. Do you have a more, I mean, verses 6 and 7 together about the angels? Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's, the, that's the key point there that he's making, that they're servants, they're not sons. The son is the son, and they are servants, yes. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I can, uh, but I can, like, no, 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 that's not how I'm not supposed, I'm not supposed to say that. The answer to that question requires uh, information I'm currently not in possession of. <laughs> Of which I am currently not in possession. If I'm, hey, can I tell you my new joke? Because I'm a grammar nerd. Here's my new joke. The past, the present, and the future walked into a bar. It was tense. <laughs> yeah. All three of my kids were like, Mom. I like that joke. Okay. I used to, when I actually taught in class, I started every class with a joke. So there you go. Um, so... I, I, I will look and see. I mean, uh, the commentaries go into great detail on stuff like that, and I'm trying to pack it down like this. So I think it's, I think my guess would be that it is poetic um, uh, imagery of what they are, that, you know, they're not necessarily flaming, um, but that it's poetic Im imagery of their service and of the, the strength of their service and uh, of, the intensity of their service, but, but I'll look that up and see if I can get you a better answer than I don't know. It's just a great answer, isn't it? All the new people are like, oh, this is a great Bible teacher we got here. <clears throat> okay, any other questions before we begin? Don't be, don't be scared to ask questions, because you'll, you'll have them in Hebrews for sure. Uh, and I can't, uh, boy, I mean, uh, this is probably the shortest week of reading, and it was well over 100 page, pages of reading just on Hebrews 1. So, you know, I'm really having to, to make sure we understand the main points of everything. But, well, let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father God, thank you so much for today and for every woman here. Father, thank you so much uh, that you have spoken, that you have not been silent, that you have revealed yourself to us, most especially by your son, and we thank you and we praise you for that initiative that you took, for that pursuit of us because of your love. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin with just a very brief review, and I didn't know we'd have new people when I decided to do a very brief review, but just kind of some background of what we went over last week. The letter to the Hebrews is called the letter to the Hebrews, but it, it doesn't start like a letter. It starts like a sermon, very much like, like a sermon. And it ends like a letter. It is unlike any other of the letters uh, in that way uh, in the New Testament. So it's really both. It's like a sermon letter. Uh, it was a sermon that was written and sent to be read aloud to a specific group of people. And a lot of scholars believe that it began as a sermon uh, that then a, 
uh, whoever wrote it uh, wrote down to have sent or sent, uh, it was probably already written down, sent out and uh, just made some revisions to it at the end, modified it at the end. The date of the writing of Hebrews was probably sometime in the, the uh, A.D. 60s, uh, probably the early to mid-60s. By the time Nero really uh, got going uh, with persecution and began um, martyring believers, uh, it was probably before that because the author says, none of you have suffered yet had to taste death because of the persecution. And uh, after the middle of the 60s, AD, that changed. Um, so uh, when, who wrote the book, uh, who wrote the letter of Hebrews? Here's the short answer. Nobody knows, at least not on earth. Only God knows uh, is what the father uh, Origen said. We know a lot about the author. We know he was very highly educated, particularly in rhetoric. We know he was a powerful speaker. We know uh, that he came to Christ, his, he was taught by or he was led to Christ by someone who knew Jesus, but he himself uh, did not know Jesus. So we know a lot about his background and his education, but we don't know his name. We don't know who it is. There, there are a few scholars, and this is very few, who think that it's possible that Priscilla wrote Hebrews and that's why she left her name out. That's probably not possible. That's probably just wishful thinking on the part of those uh, those scholars, but if it was Apollos, as some say, Apollos actually was taught by Priscilla and Aquila. He had a, he had a gospel that really needed some shoring up, and Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and said, you're a powerful speaker, speaker buddy, but let's make your gospel a little more clear. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, if it was Apollos, then there was an influence there. We're, we're going to just have to wait until heaven. I will tell you that uh, one of my very favorite theologians, the right Reverend Dr. Tim Wiebe, has given me permission to just say Apollos, because it's so, so much easier than saying the author of Hebrews. But I'm not, I'm not going to say, we're just going to call him the author uh, instead. I'm not going to go that far. The recipients of the letter of Hebrews uh, were probably in Rome, uh, in house churches in Rome. They were primarily Jewish Christians who were discouraged in their faith. Uh, they were discouraged because they were being persecuted, uh, not to the point of martyrdom, as I just mentioned, but they were beginning to experience persecution because of their faith, and so other options to Christianity began to look pretty good, because if I'm not a Christian, maybe it, this won't happen to me. So the purpose of Hebrews, based on that, is to encourage these beleaguered Christians um, to persevere in their faith to uh, remain strong, to remain firm in their faith in Christ. And then secondly, to show them from Scripture, to give them proof from Scripture how and why Jesus is better than any other option out there. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the purpose. And in fact... Um, we're going to learn today, and he's going to begin today by talking about how Jesus is the unique Son of God. And, and then we'll learn later in Hebrews that he is the only effective mediator between human beings and God. So those are the kinds of things that he's going to talk to them about Jesus being better. And uh, obviously we learn right away in chapter 1 that Jesus is better than the angels. Yeah. 
So it's already there. Now, I, I should have said this first thing. I know there are a lot of scary words. Those of you that are new, these are even scarier than usual, okay? And a lot of times you can come in and you can look at them and go, that's all Greek, it really doesn't matter. Actually, this is Greek, everything else is English. So these are just plain scary. Um, but don't be scared because they won't be scary when, when you leave. So the, the letter to Hebrews, as I mentioned last week, it kind of uh, is, a, is, a, is a tapestry of different types of writing, and particularly of exposition and exhortation. That the writer will, be, uh, will begin to give us an exposition, an explanation of spiritual truths. That's what exposition is. It is the expounding on or the explanation of spiritual or scriptural truths, spiritual and scriptural truths. Uh, and so, uh, as you found today, he, he gives you these Old Testament passages to make his point about the, his affirmations about who Jesus is and what he has done. That's exposition. Um, but then he'll move into exhortation mode, and exhortation is encouragement, but it's, it's a very specific kind of encouragement. Exhortation is encouragement that is intended to, to um, get someone to do something. It's intended to motivate a person to change or to do something uh, different or better than they're currently doing it. And so Hebrews is this tapestry, this weaving of exposition, and, and you're going to find that in, in chapter 2, he's going to begin, he's going to turn, and he's going to give an exhortation. So it's this weaving of, based on what I've just taught you about Christ, the person and the work of Christ, do this. And so he'll then turn and exhort uh, the believers, and then he mixes in these examples from, from faith history, and he gives a few really strong warnings, like, whoa, kind of warnings in this, and he mixes that all together and weaves that all together in this, in this tremendous um, poetic and tightly constructed and, and expertly precise letter to the Hebrews. It is, it is a, it's a work of art, I think. Uh, very much. So uh, it's a mixture of both exposition, expounding on scripture, and exhortation, encouragement, especially for them to persevere. So let's, let's get into the, what is called often the prologue, the first four verses of Hebrews 1. In Greek, it is one sentence, one multi-clause sentence, but in English, fortunately, they use um, punctuation. So, uh, let's read the first four verses. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Um, I want to just give you this quote by Dr. Guthrie before we start about these four verses. He says this. He says, the author opens with a majestic overture, rhetorically eloquent and theologically packed. It is just full. It, 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 it rivals in Colossians 1 the statement about Jesus or John 1.1, 1, 1, this beautiful statement of all that Jesus is and all that he has done. Uh, and so the, these first four verses present us with a contrast, a contrast between an older revelation, an older communication of God 
to his people what we would call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And he contrasts that them with a newer communication that was given through or by God's Son, through Jesus. So the first verse and, and the first part of the second verse is about that communication itself. And so we're going to read it again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, so see that contrast? contrast? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So uh, you see the contrast there. And, and the wonderful thing I want to point out, I do not want you to miss this. And I alluded to it in my prayer, is that God has not remained silent. God has spoken, um, and, and he, uh, you know, first through the prophets and, and through many ways in the Old Testament, but primarily and finally and fully in his son. That's a wonderful thing. That is not the God of the deists who created the world and then sat back and let it run on its own. No, God is involved. God has spoken. Um, a lot of times religion is about how we pursue God. What do I do to pursue God? That is not the story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it is a love story of God's pursuit of his people, of his creation whom he loves. And that's exactly what our author of Hebrews is telling us, is that God has spoken. God spoke in the past, and now he has spoken to us by his son. He has communicated himself, and his his fullest expression is in his son, Jesus. Now, on both sides of this contrast, in the past and in these last days, I want you to notice that it is the same God who speaks. And it is the same salvation that is offered through faith. When we went through Galatians and Philippians last semester, you learned that Abraham, by faith, and and. Uh, you know, his salvation came through faith. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 is going to make that very same statement. That salvation has always come through faith in God on both sides of those equations. But there are some differences. There's a difference in era. The older communication was in the past, in the time of the Old Testament. The newer one is in these last days. That's present tense for the author. In fact, it would still be considered present tense today. So what does that mean, these last days? In Judaism, prior to Jesus, the last days were considered to be that time that would begin when Messiah came and last until the end of time, the end of our, uh, the existence of, of our universe. Those were considered to be the last days in Judaism before Messiah came. So Orthodox Jews, at least, are still waiting for these last days. They're still waiting for Messiah to come. But our author isn't waiting. He's saying Messiah has come. Therefore, the last days were initiated at the incarnation. When Jesus was born, then we entered these last days, the final time before Jesus um, returns. So that we are still in these last days. And of course, for the author, that was present tense as well. Uh, the, there's also a difference in the recipients, a contrast in the recipients. The older uh, communication was to our forefathers, those living under the Old Covenant, those as uh, we learn about in the Old Testament. 
but the newer communication is to us, those who are in Christ, um, those who, us now as well, actually, uh, but those also who are in Christ at this time. How does it come? What is the agent by which it came is also contrasted. Uh, the older communication was through the prophets, and the newer is by his son. Now, we'll talk about in a, in a minute about what through the prophets means, but, but the newer is by his son. And then he talks about the ways in which the communication was given. The NIV says that it came um, at many times and in various ways. That word um, for times, it doesn't mean chronological times, at this time in history, at this time in history, and at this time in history. It actually means it came in bits and pieces. It was fragmented. It wasn't complete. And so essentially, what he is saying is that it came in fragmented and different ways. It wasn't a singular, complete revelation. And it came in bits. So, so part of it was revealed through Abraham, and then some through Moses, through the commandments, and then some through the prophets. It, wasn't, it, 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 it was unified in the sense that it all hung together, but it wasn't singular. So what he's talking about here is that this older communication was more than, he said it came through the prophets, but he means more than just the prophets. He means every way that God communicated to his people before Christ. So that would include all of the people that communicated God's truth in some way, from Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets. It would include the ways that God uh, appeared to his people in a pillar of fire, in a pillar of cloud, in a still small voice, through miracles. All of those things would be his communication to his people uh, in those times. But... In these last days, it is implied, he's saying, he has appeared in one way, by Jesus. It's not fragmented, it's not bits and pieces, uh, and it's not, at various times, it was communicated by Jesus. So while the old covenant was conveyed in bits and pieces and in various ways, this new communication comes only by God's Son. It is a complete communication. And it includes everything about Jesus, not just his teaching. It includes his teaching, but his incarnation and his miracles um, and uh, everything about him. This is what Dr. Guthrie has to say about this. He says, the author's statement should not be understood as concentrated only on the teachings of Jesus, although the words of Christ are vitally important to him. Rather, the whole of the incarnation, person, words, and acts, should be understood as communicating God's ultimate word to his new covenant people. Um, so that's the new communication. Now, the older communication wasn't bad. It was, in fact, God's communication to his people. Uh, and so it wasn't bad. It was just incomplete. Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies, of that Old Testament communication. He completes it. Um, and, and in fact, the communication by God through his son is God's climactic communication to humanity. So then if we move on to um, the second part of those first four verses, 
the author is going to tell us seven things about Jesus, seven affirmations uh, of things he has done, his achievements, and who he is, just who he is in himself, his attributes um, about, about him, seven different things. So let's read this. Uh, beginning at the second half, so uh, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as, as much superior to, to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So here's the first affirmation. The first affirmation about Jesus, the first thing we learn about Jesus is that God appointed Jesus to be heir of all things. The whole of the created order belongs to him. And there's a reason for that. The reason the whole of the created order is his is that he created it. That's the second affirmation, that God made the universe through Jesus. Now, now got, the way theologians would say it is that Christ is the agent of creation. Now, that might sound new to you, but that is taught throughout the New Testament. In fact, uh, the Gospel of John, John one begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, meaning Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, it, uh, was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, through Jesus, and without him nothing was made that has been made. If you go to Colossians 1, and now this is Paul writing, He's, he has this beautiful, I think it begins at verse 16, this beautiful explanation of all that Jesus is and all he has done. And then he says, all things were made by him and for him. So this is not some sort of off-the-range teaching, that, that Jesus was the agent of creation, that all things were made through him. Thirdly, he tells us that Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of of his being. To see Jesus is to see God's glory. God's glory fully dwells in Jesus. But it's not just to see his glory, it's to see God's very being and nature. Jesus said this of himself. Um, he said in John 14 to his disciples, uh, he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So. He is the exact representation. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I told you in the study this week that that word representation, exact representation, is, is the Greek word character. And that was a word that was used for imprinting an image on something else so that the image was the exact representation of the thing that made the imprint. It was actually used on coins. A character was both what made the imprint and the imprint on the coin as well. That's what Jesus is. He is the exact representation. He is the full expression. Uh, God dwells completely in him. I love what F.F. F. Bruce says. He says, in Christ, the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men and women. So that's the third one. The fourth one is that Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, that word for sustains literally means to bear something 
or to carry it. But don't get the picture of like Atlas with the world on his back, just kind of, you know, what it means is if he's carrying it, it means he's carrying it to a desired end. Okay? He's moving all things. He sustains all things. He bears them. He carries them to their designed end. Uh, so he is um, in control of that process. Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. The fifth thing is that Christ provided purification for our sins. Trust me, when you get done with Hebrews, you will not say, I wish he would have said more about the whole purification of the sins thing. He will go into great detail about how and why Jesus uh, was the purification for our sins, that he was the full and final sacrifice uh, for our sins. But just the sort of the shorter version of that, the Reader's Digest version of that, is that by his death, Jesus provided for us full and complete and um, full forgiveness for our sins uh, and permanent forgiveness for our sins. The sixth thing is that uh, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Now, uh, this is, um, he says, at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, which is a way of saying God. So he sat down at the right uh, hand of God. He will also, the author will also go into this uh, in more detail as, as he walks through this. In fact, just even in the second part of chapter 1, we'll talk about this. But to be at the right hand of anyone, but particularly to be seated at the right hand of someone was, was an honor. Um, that was the, the place of honor. Still is, actually. Um, but uh, to be seated at God's right hand has even more connotation than that. It, it, it's not only honor, it's power and it's victory. It's a, it's a way of connoting power and victory and honor, all of which are Christ's. And then finally, the seventh affirmation is that Jesus is superior to and inherited a name superior to the angels. Now, Jesus' superiority to the angels, as you know, will be a continued theme in this as well. Uh, but the question you might have is, well, what is that name that he inherited? And, and many believe that the name is Son, Son of God. But, but actually, uh, it, may be, it may be, and I think it is, more than that. Because that is, a, that is a broad word, that word name. It can mean name, but it can also uh, mean status or title or rank, or reputation, or even person. So the name uh, actually was a, a title that was given to God. Sometimes he was called the name. And during the time of the early church, that was ascribed to Jesus. They would call him the name. And so what most scholars believe, uh, or reputable ones <laughs> believe, is that this means at least that Jesus is Lord. And, and very likely means that Jesus is God, which he's going to plainly state in the upcoming verses. Uh, so the prologue in a nutshell, just kind of the, the bird's eye view of it, is that the author tells us not only who Jesus is, but he also tells us what he has done uh, and, and how that uniquely qualifies him to be God's full and climactic revelation to humanity. One more um, quote from Dr. Guthrie before we move on. So the opening statement of Hebrews introduces us to the heart of the book as a whole. God has something to say to the church 
And that message focuses preeminently in the person and work of the exalted son. And it is a message that is as fresh today as it was millennia ago. So how do we apply this then, this, this prologue? And, and I, wanna, I wanna give you this idea on an application. And that is this, that doctrine is important. What? How is that application, Amy? Hang with me. If you uh, frequent, as I do, Christian bookstores, and you walk down the aisles, you will come across literally rows of Christian self-help books. The title they give that section is Christian Living. It's the largest section of any Christian bookstore, unless I suppose it's Wheaton College's bookstore or something like that. But that is what you will find. If you go to the Bible Doctrine section, the section that I frequent, it's like this, okay? Here's our, it's much, much smaller. Now, that's partly because, and I think that says something, by the way, about the modern church, but that's partly because we want things that are relevant, we want things that are practical to help us in our lives, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I pray this study will be practical and relevant to you, but the problem is, is if that then, if that, that wisdom, that practical and relevant thing is not founded on a firm biblical foundation, it's useless. I say often, and you've heard me say before, that we can't live what we don't know. But I thought this week, you know, we really don't know what we don't know, too. If we don't know it, we don't know it. Now, that's profound. You just haven't figured it out yet. Sometime later today, you're going to be sitting around going, we don't know what we don't know, do we? We need to know what we don't know, but we don't know it. It's, it's going to hit you at some point. Um, so we, we must, uh, you know, have a firm foundation of truth to build our lives on. Uh, and, and that's why I have these scary words here, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right thinking. And, and knowing spiritual truth gives us right thinking. And the only way we get to orthopraxy, which is right living, is through orthodoxy. We can only live rightly if our thinking is aligned with the God of the universe and with his revelation to us. If we move that foundation, we crumble. Even if we think we're standing, we crumble. Right living comes out of right thinking. Dr. George Guthrie says, right theology lays an important foundation for a Christian life robustly lived. A neglect of theology, on the other hand, has detrimental effects on the church and individual Christian lives. Um, so our application then is this, that we must arm ourselves with right doctrine, with the truth of the Bible. I, uh, you know, we, we, we need to, to read and know and understand the deep truths of the faith. Doctrine matters, ladies, and doctrine matters because in order to live lives that honor God in obedience and perseverance, we must know the truth that he has revealed, that he has communicated to us through his son, and that he has preserved for us in his word, in the Bible. Now, I know that I'm preaching to the choir here because y'all are in Bible study right now, and you're in Hebrew, Hebrews no less. So I know I'm preaching to the choir, um, but I just want to encourage you, I just want to exhort you to keep on keeping on in building a solid foundation <coughs> of biblical literacy. 
Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a fabulous theologian of the last century, uh, said this, ultimately, it is the word of God, not our words, that has the power to change people's lives. Amen? So, we're going to move on uh, to verses 5 through 14, these seven different passages from the Old Testament. I want to start by giving you just a little bit of background on it. Uh, first, I want to talk to you about the Bible that this, the author of Hebrews would have used, because he quotes from it extensively. And this may be in your study somewhere. I couldn't remember, so I'm going to tell you now. The Bible that the author would have used was a Greek translation of the Hebrew original of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was translated into Greek. That would have been the Bible that our author used. It's called the Septuagint. This is how it is um, abbreviated. This is 70, I think. Yeah, in, uh, in uh, Roman numerals. And it's actually would just, this is how it's abbreviated, and so if you're reading a commentary, it'll just say LXX, and for the longest time I was like, what is extra large? I do not understand. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> and they've got it backwards, too. Uh, and, and so it, it would just be referred to as the 70. If you want to know why it's 70, because you're right now you're going, there aren't that many books in the Old Testament, what's going on? I'll tell you, but we don't have time right now. Uh, so that would have been the Bible of the author of Hebrews. Um, it differs slightly. If you look up his translations that we have here, um, oh, that's not what I want. Okay, never mind on that. Uh, if you look up um, the translations as they appear and then you go back to the original, you go, that's not quite the same. Here's the reason why. He was using a Greek translation of the Hebrew. We are using an English translation of the Hebrew, but in this case, in the case of his quotes, we're using an English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Now, I don't want to tell, I don't want to say that things get lost in the translation because I don't believe they do, but they do get some wording changed uh, here and there. Uh, not meaning, but they do get wording changed a little bit. Actually, the chapters and verses are a little bit different too, but we don't need to worry about that right now. Uh, I also want you to know four assumptions that the author makes about the Old Testament. I think these are important. I think these are, are foundational for our understanding of not only these quotations that will appear in Hebrews, but of our, our, our author as well. The first is that the, the author would tell you that the Old Testament, I would tell you too actually, the Old Testament consists of the words of God. You may have already noticed that he doesn't say, for it is written, as Paul would. He doesn't even say David writes in Psalms. What does he say? God said. And then he quotes something David wrote or somebody else wrote. The author is saying God is the author of the Old Testament. It is God who is speaking those things. Secondly, and this kind of follows on that, obviously, that the Old Testament presents the truth. If the words of the Old Testament are God's words, they therefore are necessarily also true words. Thirdly, the Old Testament presents a unified revelation from beginning to end. Even though it came in bits and pieces, it is unified. Now, one of the ways we know this is that our author makes really um, strong use of a literary device called verbal analogy, 
which is where you would take one word from one passage and take another passage that shares that word, and you would use them together in an argument. That's called verbal analogy. Well, if you're going to use that, that presupposes that God has spoken uh, in, a, in a systematic way, in a unified way, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and that is what our author is telling us. Finally, our author would say that the Old Testament bears witness to Christ. I put it differently. I say the Old Testament is a neon sign pointing to Jesus. He is all over the Old Testament. Uh, it's just sometimes people don't recognize it. I love this quote from uh, Klein Snodgrass. So please go forward. Please go forward. Shazam. No. Thank you. Uh, this is what Klein, I know this, guys. I read a commentary by him once, and every time I said Snodgrass, I laughed. I mean, it's, poor guy. He can't even get married and change it. Okay. Uh, Texts that may have been general statements about the nation, prophets, priests, or kings at that time before Christ came would often be idealized in anticipation of God's end-time deliverer, the Messiah, who would fill categories as no one else had. So David had been the king par excellence, but one day there would be a king like him, only better. The early church applied such, such texts to Jesus because of their conviction about his identity, that he was Messiah. The conviction about his identity did not derive from the Old Testament. They did not find the texts and then find Jesus. They found Jesus and then saw how the scriptures already fit with him. They were not proving his identity in the technical sense so much as they were demonstrating how the scriptures fit with him. Uh, so the Old Testament is all about Jesus. In verses 5 through 14, there's also a continuation of themes from the first four verses that God speaks uh, is also a theme of these verses. That Jesus is the unique son of God. He's also going to talk about Christ's role in creation and then about Christ's exaltation to God's right hand. Uh, for time's sake, we're going to skip over the structure uh, and begin with verse 5, uh, the son's unique relationship with the father. Why did this quit working for me, Julie? Thank you. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. So this is a rhetorical question and the obvious answer is none. There are no angels to which he said this. He did say it about Jesus or to Jesus, but he never said it to any angel. Jesus is the unique son of God. These um, Old Testament quotations here are two kind of put together. And, uh, or excuse me, I'm sorry, that's, I've moved down. Um, this one is from uh, Psalm, uh, there it is two put together, I'm sorry, Psalm 2-7 and Samuel 7-14 put together. Now, uh, as I just mentioned with Klein Snodgrass, messianic passages, there were some passages in the Old Testament that were clearly understood even by those before Christ as being prophecies of Messiah. There were others that were only realized to be prophecies of Messiah after he came and they went, wait a minute. Jesus fulfills that one, too. And there are hundreds of them, hundreds of them in the Old Testament, beginning with the first part of Genesis. Um, now, what about today? What, what's that word mean? When, he, when, G, when God says to Jesus, you are my son, 
Today I have become your father. Like, wasn't he always his father? Wasn't Jesus always the son of God? He's uncreated and always has been. Yes, this is, uh, this is just the representation of what has always been. It is, it is God speaking what has always been true. It, it didn't happen. This, by the way, would have been at Jesus' exaltation after his ascension, but it had always been true. And then in verses 6 and 7, he begins to talk about how Christ is so much superior to the angels. And again, when God brings his firstborn son into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. So now, when it says that God brings his firstborn into the world, the first thing you would probably think about is his incarnation. Yeah, it's really complicated. And you don't want me, because here's, here's the deal. This is what you'll look like after I get done explaining it. I mean, you still want, it, it's very, very complicated. But let me just tell you that the wording in the Greek actually, um, actually in the Hebrew to the Greek, actually would be better worded that when he came into the heavenly realms. So what this is talking about is actually, again, his exaltation, uh, not his incarnation. And I know that that's, that's weird, but um, that's what it's talking about. Um, so when Jesus was enthroned at God's right hand, at his ascension, and that fits both the context and the actual wording in the Greek better. Now, there are two things that prove that Jesus is superior to angels. The first is that they worship him. That's the point of the first quotation from Psalm 2. The second one is, uh, the point of using that one, and it's a verbal analogy, as you'll notice, uh, with the word angels, is that angels are servants of God, not sons. And Jesus is the unique son of God. And he was a servant but he alone is the unique son of God. Um, so that, that, those are two things that prove that he is superior, two ways um, that angels are subordinate to him. Now, angels, I, I don't have a lot of time to go into the whole angel thing. Um, they're big business uh, and have been for some time. There's even a study of angels. It's called angelology. I did not make that up. That is really true. Um, but I do want to just clarify, I just want to tell you what they are, um, because there's also a lot of wrong theology. There's a lot of wrong theology surrounding angelology. People don't die and become angels. Angels are created beings. Jesus is not a created being. Angels are created beings that have a number of purposes. Their first purpose is as servants of God, who oftentimes announce... Um, statements for God that make special statements uh, or reve reveal his will or announce events. So like when Jesus was to be born, the angel Gabriel appealed to Mary and announced it. And then the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph and announced it. The angels in the heavens appeared to the shepherds and said, didn't sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men with whom he has found favor. So, so they are created beings who uh, announce events for God, and they also serve and protect God's people. They are glorious beings. 
There is nothing in any of these passages that would tell you anything else. They, the author is not degrading angels. He is not saying they're unimportant. He's saying they are glorious. So think how glorious the sun must be if he is so much superior to them than angels. Then in verses 8 through 12, it talks about the sun's eternal reign. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Jesus, your God, the Father, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up. Jesus will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. So this is telling us from uh, two Psalms that um, Jesus' reign is eternal. And the, there are three overarching themes in these passages, and I'm going to have to hurry through this. But the first is his authority. Notice how he, in this passage, is the creator and the sustainer of all of creation. He is both the author of creation and he will be the terminator of the creation. It'll be rolled up like a garment. This is also telling us about Jesus' eternal nature. Um, as opposed to the angels, Jesus is not part of the created order. He is eternal. Even the universe isn't eternal. The, etern the, the universe is perishable. It will perish. But Jesus, as Hebrews would tell us in Hebrews 13, is the, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It also very clearly tells us about Jesus' divinity, which is, again, talking about him being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus clearly, clearly is called God in this passage. In fact, uh, this, is, this is one of the most clear, explicit references to Jesus as God in the New Testament. Uh, and further, these, these verses stress that the Son, um, th that the Son, like God and unlike the universe and angels, is unchanging. He is immutable. He is the same forever. This would have been very encouraging to believers who were suffering persecution, to put their hope in the eternal one, in the unchanging one. My life is going crazy around me. I must hope in the one who doesn't change, who is eternal. And then finally, in verses 13 through 14, we have uh, this quote from Psalm 110. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right, right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at, for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit, inherit salvation? So this is an inclusio. He started with the rhetorical question about angels. He ends with a rhetorical question about angels again, God never said this to an angel. He only said it uh, to and about the son. So that's a, that's a liter, liter, literary vice, device called an inclusio. Uh, and so the son is enthroned in the preeminent position of the universe, and the defeat of his enemies is certain. It is ensured because of all he is and all he has done, which has been the focus of all of Hebrews 1. Well, let's just, uh, I just have one concluding thought about this. Um, 
the world, I think, has a very different view of Jesus than what we just read in Hebrews 1. They like Jesus as like a soft Jesus, like the one that said, love your enemies and don't judge. They like that. But the king of the universe, they don't like that. That's a little harder to accept. But that is what he is. He is the king of the universe. I want to read to you, uh, this is, this is one of my top two or three favorite books by my top, top, my favorite author, one of my top two favorite authors. And in this book, my favorite book of his is Mere Christianity. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I'm trying to prevent here anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Ladies, the purpose of the first chapter of the letter to Hebrews is to introduce us to Jesus, the real Jesus, the living and reigning Jesus, the one who is worthy of the worship of angels and is therefore most certainly worthy of ours, the one who created and sustains the universe, the one who is enthroned at God's right hand, the one who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, the one who died for our sins and was raised to conquer death so that we might live lives that honor him and so that we might find hope and peace in a very dark world. I'll take that over soft Jesus any day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you have sent your son, the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your being, to pay the penalty for our sins. May we never cease to marvel at that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies. See you next week.